welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101, I'm honoured to be speaking to Professor David John Nutt, an English neuropsychopharmacologist specialising in the research of drugs that affect the brain and conditions such as addiction, anxiety and sleep. He is the chairman of Drug Science, a non-profit which he founded in 2010 to provide independent evidence-based information on drugs. This was such a fascinating conversation and I've been desperate to speak to him for so long seeing as I've had my own experience with psychedelics. In today's episode, we take a deep dive into psychedelics and I ask him the questions I've always wanted to know the answers to, such as what was the reason therapeutic use of psychedelics was made illegal, why research surrounding them has always been shrouded in controversy, and whether he thinks the general outlook on psychedelics is ever likely to change in the UK. It's a fascinating conversation and Professor David Nutt explains even the most complicated topics in such a clear and concise way, so I really do hope you enjoy it. I'd love to dive in and just talk about what psychedelics are and how they work in the brain. Well, when we're talking about psychedelics in the context of medical new medicines, medical treatments, we're normally talking about what we call the classic psychedelics, medicines like LSD, psilocybin, and ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, of course, is a, uh, a drinkable form of the active ingredient DMT or dimethyltryptamine. And they all work on the serotonin system in the brain, one of the many different kinds of serotonin receptors, but the one that's particularly highly expressed in the the top most recently evolved parts of our brain. Alongside that, there's also the drug ketamine, which is also a medicine, which produces rather similar changes in consciousness and also in brain state, and also is being used in many places as an alternative to Psychedelics, well, you can't get the classic psychedelics because they're still illegal. Because ketamine is a medicine for pain and uh, anesthesia, it's much easier to access or, or go off license. Because all the classic psychedelics are on, in most countries are still illegal. Let's focus on psilocybin because I think that's where a lot of the research is showing to be very effective in terms of treating depression, PTSD. It's in the early stages for OCD and anorexia, but still it's it's really making headway. And I think for sake of clarity, it'd be great to focus on that. What would you say is the, the difference between a recreational trip and a therapeutic trip? Because I think the two are very, very different. And I think often people get confused and assume they're not. And harking back to the 60s and 70s where psychedelics were used as, as such a recreational drug it's quite hard to now reframe that narrative so i'd love for you to elucidate on that well the difference is that when we use these drugs in clinical settings in people who've got serious mental illnesses they don't tend to have a sort of blissful ecstatic trip they rarely go to nirvana they rarely go to heaven what they do is they confront their demons they go inside their mind and they begin to deal with the problems, the traumas, very often traumas even in childhood, that have underpinned and and probably contributed to the development 
of their depression or their OCD or their PTSD. So these trips are, are challenging, demanding. That's why we have therapists there helping people prepare for them and also work through the uh, experiences and insights they get during the trip and, and make the best use of them afterwards. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And um, building on my own experience with a therapeutic psychedelic trip with psilocybin last mm-hmm. year, it is like you're revisiting those traumas and you're reprocessing them. I think a lot of people can be quite afraid that they're going to see things that they haven't seen before and they're suddenly going to have these epiphanies and, and regret the path that their life's maybe taken and and all sorts of other things. But someone once put it very well, it's almost like a, a cleaning out of all of the neural pathways and it, it gives you the ability to really see inside and to, yeah, as you say, understand. But in revisiting those traumas, how does that then help you move forward, do you think? Yes, I think that description is absolutely super. So many of our patients use computer analogies, like it's reformatting, it's running a, an antivirus screen, it's uh, defragging a hard drive, because that's kind of what it does. The way we think these drugs work is by breaking down the ongoing, often decades-old patterns of thought and behavior that are destructive, unwanted, but seemingly outside the control, the voluntary control of the person who's suffering. And it's the impact of psychedelics to disrupt ongoing rhythmic activity in the brain, which allows the escape from those underpinning circuits, underpinning procedures, and allows people to escape during the trip. And then as a result of that escape, they can see things differently. And it's almost as if their brain is is reset. It's allowed to think as it should be thinking before the traumas and the depressions, etc., kicked in. You speak a lot about the default mode network in the brain, which I think is often a real problem, particularly for people suffering with ruminative disorders, where you know there's a lot of internal chat, should we say, and there's a lot of inner critic. Yes. So how do psychedelics work on this, and how can they start changing it? Well, should we just explain to the you're, maybe all your listeners are very uh, expert neuroscientists. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should just give a little intro to the default mode network because my experience is that when I talk, even to psychiatrists, most of them have never heard of it. And the reason they haven't heard of it is because it's only recently been discovered. And it's in some ways perhaps the most interesting outcome of our ability now to image the brain. And we can image the brain in different ways. We can use what's called uh, functional magnetic resonance, fMRI. We can use EEG. And when we do that, we discover that there are a whole series of different uh, networks in the brain working in synchrony. So, for instance, you know, you're listening to me now, and that means that your auditory network is buzzing away, but also your language network is buzzing away. And you're almost certainly thinking about the kinds of things that I'm saying, how they resonate with you. So there'll be sort of memory networks going away as well. If we take someone, and we can do this now, we can do this to our listeners. If, I want you all to close your eyes now. And then when I stop speaking, I want you to just sit quietly and close your eyes and reflect on what you think is the most interesting uh, reason why people should be doing this kind of work, why we should be studying psychedelics. So just do that now. Just close your eyes, sit quietly, and just reflect on why you're listening to this program at all. Okay, you can open your eyes if you hear me again, obviously now. Now, if I was scanning you, 
during that short break where you were just reflecting internally, the dominant circuit in the brain would be a circuit which we call the default mode network. It's called the default mode because it's the circuit that works when you're not doing other things. As soon as you start to listen or open your eyes or move your arms or do anything, the default mode begins to switch off. But it is a really critical network. It's the network in which you encode your sense of self, where you encode your knowledge of your past, your present, where you develop your thoughts and fears and hopes for the future. It's where your ego is. You know, some people, if you're a spiritual person, it's really where your, your spirit is engaged. What turns out is that this network is, uh, kind of gets taken over in some malign way when people get mental health problems such as depression. So in depression, we know that there's more of the brain is engaged in that internal reflective processing than in people who aren't depressed. And of course, in depression, that, that's because there's a whole added layer of ruminations which relate to guilt and self-deprecation and self-criticism, etc. And in fact, one of the main reasons we started doing studies of psilocybin in depression was because about the time we showed that psilocybin disrupts the default mode network, a group at Yale had showed the default mode network was overconnected in depression. So it, it made sense to ask the question, if there's too much of this internal reflective thinking in depression, because that network's overactive, and, and if we can disrupt that network with psilocybin, maybe we could disrupt depression. In fact, that's why we did the experiment, and that's what happened. Your brain is so good at learning to do things, but if it learns to do the wrong thing, it can be really hard to unlearn. So I, I often use this kind of um, title for my talk. So, you know, psychedelics had changed the brain and opened the mind. And how do psychedelics work on, on that? So let's go back to the basic pharmacology. So I mentioned serotonin and uh, Serotonin, everyone's heard of. It's a neurotransmitter, probably the, one of the very oldest neurotransmitters in evolutionary terms. It's been around for billions of years. And, you know, as you know, humans have only been around for you know a few million. And because it's been around so long, it's developed all sorts of different roles. So in your brain, as you listen to this, serotonin is help, helping control your blood pressure. It's helping control the acid-based balance in your blood, it's helping control your respiration, it's helping control your appetite, it's helping control very many different things in, in your brain. And it does that through different receptors because there are 15 different types of receptors that serotonin works on. But one of them, and this is really kind of, is even in evolutionary terms, really fascinating. One of them is called the serotonin 2A receptor. That's the receptor of psilocybin. LSD, DMT work on. But what's fascinating is that receptor is mostly expressed in the very most recently evolved parts of the brain, the parts of the brain which are different, are bigger and better, and in some cases unique in human brain compared with any other primate. The parts of the brain which make humans different from other primates. And they're loaded with these 5-HC2A receptors. And that's what's led some people like Terence McKenna to say, well, maybe these receptors actually led to the growth of the human brain to be so much bigger than other brains. And maybe that was triggered by eating things like magic mushrooms that stimulate those receptors. Well, we don't know why those receptors are there, but we certainly know that if you stimulate them with psilocybin, 
you produce a profound alteration in brain function. You break down normal rhythmic activity in the brain, the normal automatic brain processes which constrain and direct most of what we do in life. You know, we don't have to think about speaking or walking or sleeping. The brain just goes ahead and does it. Psychedelics disrupt those intrinsic processes. And, uh, and that's what a psychedelic experience is. It's, it's a breakdown of normal routine analysis of the external world and predictions of the external world that your brain has become really efficient at doing over you know, your lifetime. So it's accessing the, the almost the dysfunctional memory patterns that aren't serving us in a rational sense. Yes, that's right. So for reasons that, and I have to say, we don't really understand, and, and they're not easy to research, but brains get locked into doing things which aren't necessarily adaptive. So, for instance, you know, you, if you're traumatized, so you say you have a massive, you know, you have a terrible, terrible trauma. It doesn't make a lot of sense to keep reliving that trauma because actually that's just destructive and, 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 and really very disruptive and, and, and emotionally very damaging. But you can't stop it. And that's because in your brain you have processes which say something's important. And a near-death experience, which is you know, what is one of the sort of characteristics the initiation of something like PTSD, a really severe experience like that is life-threatening. And your brain wants to make sure that you don't put yourself in that position again. But that learnt fear of recurrence, that dominates your life because you can't switch it off. Once, once you've developed that, and, and, and obviously it makes sense, especially if you're a child, you know, the first time you burn your hands on a flame, you want to learn instantly. You're not going to do that again. You know, so fear learning is a, is very primitive. It's very powerful because it has to be, otherwise you're dead. But that dominates all the other rational things that your brain's trying to do. And, and so people get locked into repetitive reminiscences or resurgences of the, uh, particularly the emotions that go with, with the pain because it, because it's become instantly conditioned. And what psychedelics do is break down that, those circuits, which, repetitively drive those memories of the trauma or in the same way repetitively drive the negative thinking in depression and yet people say what why do depressed people think that they're worthless and have guilt and and, and actually feels they're so bad that they've hurt and harmed other people that's more difficult to address we don't actually really understand the origins of depression except when we start to think about children so we can make more sense of it if we explore child psychology because we, we know from the work of Klein and colleagues that children tend to feel that they're the center of the world. You know, a child cries, it gets fed, it gets cleaned, it gets dressed, etc., it gets hugged. So children, we believe, have a sense that they are the center of the universe, the center of the world. Things happen at their command. Very useful, keeps children alive. But suppose something bad happens to you when you're a child. You can internalize that and think it was me that caused that to happen. It was my fault. I, in the same way, you know, I demanded rest. I demanded food. I demanded being hugged. Maybe I demanded being harmed. Now, that's not a cognitive thing. I want to emphasize it's not children don't reason this, but it's the process of, of things happening to a child tends to internalize in the child as being that was the child's intention that that to happen. And that's why I think 
traumatic events in childhood lead to long-standing distress because the child developed, they're in, in, in imprinted at a very early phase, uh, and they commandeer and direct all subsequent thoughts. So it's not surprising. They can be quite hard to break, and that's why psychotherapy very often doesn't work because people just can't even engage with the, with the concept, the intellectual concept of changing what they are is is difficult to do just by thinking. But if you can disrupt the brain's processes which are driving those thoughts, then you can begin to engage the psychotherapy and, and, and change your attitude completely. And so with that, that's why I think the research you're doing is just so incredibly exciting because there's so much hope going forward that actually you can reprocess and you can actually reprogram your brain. And that's why I think... We're at the cusp of this really pivotal moment in meds in psychological medicine and pharmacology, and and it's really incredible. Exactly, and it's you know I, I just hope that psychologists listening to this understand that you know that up till now or for a very long time there's been a sort of them and us. There's oh you psychiatrists, you know you just poison people with medicines, and we psychologists, you know we talk things through with people and we solve their problems through. Therapy, but we know, we know that neither of our traditional approaches are that good. <laughs> you know, we know that even with the very best psychotherapy, a lot of people are still depressed, and a lot of people have still got severe PTSD. And the truth is, the more severe the depression than PTSD, the less likely it is to respond to psychotherapy. Same to some extent with drugs. Mm. What's exciting to me about the future is that we can use psychedelics to allow people to really get the full benefit from psychotherapy. And I really hope psychotherapists and psychologists embrace that because it, it could transform their clinical outcomes as well as psychiatrists. Yeah, I do too. And then it's also, as you say, it's knowing that when a condition becomes chronic, I think there's just so much that needs to change. And often as an outpatient and when you're not completely immersed in a treatment, and even if you are immersed in a treatment, it can be just so incredibly hard and it's too painful to do it alone and to reprocess what you're being asked to reprocess without some other aid. Absolutely. And actually, there's another spin to that. It's hard because your brain doesn't want to go there. Mm. A lot of the exhaustion and lots of energy and uh, and despair and sleep disturbance, etc., you get in disorders like anorexia and depression, PTSD, is because you're using a lot of your brain to block out those memories, and that's hard work. And and you know, your brain kind of knows there's a stress under there, but it doesn't want you because it knows you can't cope with get accessing it. And psychedelics disrupt that those blocks and you can therefore get where you've got to get so you know in a way you can see it a little bit like an ocd state where you know the, the depressed brain is is desperately doing things thinking thinking things to stop you confronting the real core of the problem and i think they enable you to build such a solid foundation because i think Again, with a lot of people I've spoken to who are in recovery and who have started that process from a range of, of issues, whether it's depression, an eating disorder, OCD, I mean, you get to a certain level and then it becomes incredibly difficult to move beyond that level. And it's like you're just about yeah, managing you're and you're just about functioning, but the condition is still very much alive in you and it still really inhibits your life in a number of ways. And I think what's really 
really exciting about psychedelics is that there is that hope that actually you could start to live a life completely free of all those shackles and those traumatic memories because you really have truly reprocessed them yeah i think that's that is what we're finding we're finding in the depression study so as you probably know we did the first sort of head-to-head between psilocybin and a strong ssri escitalopram and psilocybin was better on most counts but the one area where it was particularly good was getting people into what we call remission getting rid of the depression depending on which scale we use between twice and up to five times as many people got fully well on psilocybin and of course that's the goal that's the goal of all treatments in all medicines to get people fully well rather than just as you pointed out help people just limp along and and we haven't fully analyzed our data anorexia yet but what we're seeing is that our anorexic patients are saying for the first time they can see their illness differently they can see previously they kind of knew what they were doing didn't wasn't right and they knew they you know they weren't fatter than they thought they, you know they knew they they knew all the words they knew you know the trope about anorexia but they couldn't properly disengage with those kind of thoughts whereas after the side of they can see the world differently they begin to see that they actually are a different a person that has the is empowered that has the competencies to actually live without the need for those kind of thoughts and behaviors you know that's the first time i think we've seen people with anorexia come out and say i see it differently now hurt to healing has partnered with brown advisory to bring you this podcast Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. So you've alluded to the research in depression, and I think there's sort of quite a lot going on with, I mean, all sorts, MDMA, ketamine as well. So going forward, what are you hoping to achieve? And and what's the trajectory, do you think, as to when they might be legalized, when psilocybin, the different and and the different rates at which you think they might be legalized? Because I know that Australia is just, I mean, the first nation, isn't it, to fully legalize therapeutic use of MDMA and psilocybin? Well, let's just talk about Australia, because I was instrumental in that uh, that success, I would say. I went there for three weeks last year. I met with regulators and doctors, politicians, I presented to them really the, the, the evidence that psilocybin and MDMA are actually much, much safer drugs than people used to think. But there was a particularly interesting aspect of Australia, which is that they, um, they had a charity called My Medicine Australia that was campaigning for compassionate access. And it, its strap line was very straightforward but very compelling. One, Australian the first responder, that's fireman, policeman, paramedic, etc., kills himself every day. And most of them have either got PTSD or depression. Their argument was, it makes no sense to deny access to treatments which have been proven therapeutic. We've done research on these drugs now for well over two decades. Why would you deny it to people who are going to kill themselves? on the grounds that it might be harmful when you know it's not harmful. So the, it, it basically, they, the emperor's clothes were, were challenged. And 
the Australian Therapeutic Goods Administration, the equivalent of their, uh, the FDA, they said, yeah, for, if you failed all other treatments, what have you got to lose? What have we got to lose by giving people access as long as they are given it by a trained person, a trained psychiatrist, and you get, they're getting the uh, medicine provided at, uh, you know, by, uh, well, in a form which we call GMP, Good Manufacturing Practice. Now, the really clever thing, and, and this is why it could work in Australia, it, it may not work here, is that the charity became the provider. It set up the processes to import the medicines. And that's, to my mind, very exciting because one of the fears I have is that classical drug company, pharmaceutical company approaches aren't going to work with psychedelics because there's not actually enough money in, in the therapy to uh, appeal to the very big companies. And that means if it might be that we never get these medicines being sold in the traditional way. And what Australia has done, Australia has shown that you can do it in a different way. You could actually have a charity and committed doctors making progress. So what's going to happen here? Well, what's going to happen here is that we're going to carry on banging the drum for regulatory reform. Psilocybin should not be a Schedule One drug, a Schedule One Class A drug alongside crack cocaine and crystal meth. It is way less harmful than them. Uh, moreover, it's a medicine, so it should never be in Schedule One, which says it's not a medicine. So we've got to change the scheduling. We've got to do that by getting control of the scheduling and the classification out of the Home Office. The Home Office is a Department of, of State which likes to say no. It likes to say no to criminals. It likes to say no to immigrants. It likes to say no to the use of drugs. We've got to get it out of there into the Health Department because that's where at least they'll, they'll get a fair hearing. And we've got to do that soon because we actually lose more people each day to suicide. We, it's, uh, in Britain, it's, it's 15 a day rather than one a day, total suicides. So, as I say, it makes no sense to carry on doing what we've been doing up till now. We've got to, we've got to change things. And will you talk us through the difference between macrodosing and microdosing? Because I think that can confuse quite a lot of people and where macrodosing is needed and where microdosing might be beneficial. Yes. So I, I like to distinguish four levels of dosing. A macrodose is a dose that gives you a trip. So with psilocybin, it's, uh, if you're taking the, um, the pure powder, it's 25 milligrams. That gives you a trip. With NSD, it's 100 micrograms. gives you a full trip. We generally use just one or two of those in our clinical trials to get them. And most of the effect, by the way, comes from the first trip. Now, the other extreme, you have microdosing. Microdosing, by definition, should be a dose you don't notice. It's normally, people microdose two or three times a week. And just keep on doing it and claim it's beneficial in terms of mood and creativity and well-being, etc. Very hard to study, never been systematically studied because the drugs are illegal. So it, and it's very difficult to give illegal drugs to people, even in tiny quantities, because it doesn't matter. One molecule of psilocybin is illegal. So we don't have good data. It might work. I think over time, you know, microdosing might, might help mood a bit. It might help give people resilience, but we can't prove it. Then in between those, there are two other doses. There's what I call midi-dosing. And midi-dosing, interesting, is what we're using in our patients in our OCD trial. So this is, in technical terms, this is 10 milligrams of psilocybin. Now, the reason we're doing that is that our expert OCD patients said that they would not accept the risk of having a full trip. They didn't want to lose control. So 
the, the MIDI dose we use, the 10 milligram dose, actually does have an effect. People do feel different. They feel they know they had something. Their mind becomes more fluid, more flexible. They can reflect more on their behaviors. And what we're hoping is that the this non-psychedelic dose will help them better engage with the psychological processes which are helping them get control over their OCP. And then there's what I call a mini dose. That's not, well, none of these are technical terms, but a mini dose is a, is a, is a micro dose you can feel. And that's actually what most people use. Most people microdose at a level where they just notice something, you know, their mood lifts a bit, they feel you know, a slight wobbliness in their field of view. And that's probably what people, as I say, are doing when they think they're microdosing. And that's quite plausible, will have some beneficial effects. Uh, particularly if you, you know, if you're, a, if you're very committed to the concept anyway. Yeah. And I mean, I think as soon as possible, well, with your, your great research and hopefully over time when that's all legalized that you'll be able to get, you'll be able to gather more, more and more evidence as to what's effective, how it's effective, because I suspect that it might be effective to say, do a macro dose periodically. And then in between maybe for shorter periods do. I think you're right. Yeah. That I think is the critical experiment. Now, there is a study going on in Australia using a microdose to see if it can help lift depression or prevent depression. So we may get some results on that in the next year or so. But I think that is, I think that is the experiment. Help people get out of their depression with a macrodose and then see if a, if, if a microdose or a mini dose will keep them well. Well, and how can our listeners and how can I support you and find you and accelerate this process? Because, I mean, as you said, hopefully within a couple of years, this is going to start really, really changing. And hopefully with lobbying the government enough and, and things, it, they'll start to see that this is really a, a game changer for mental health. Yeah, absolutely. So you've, you've hit the nail on the head, lobbying. So we need to keep talking about it. So as I say to everyone, buy my psychedelic book, give it away as Christmas present so that people read it. Whenever you hear someone talk rubbish about psychedelics, oh, they're very dangerous, so, you, know, you know, they drive you mad, they make you jump out of trees, etc. Challenge that. You know, don't let those those misperceptions. They're not even misperceptions; they were lies that were were put out deliberately to justify the ban. But also keep emphasizing the huge unmet need. I heard a, someone say yesterday I was on a on a panel. Uh, someone who works in the investment field of depression was saying there's about 70 million people in Europe, I think, with depression that isn't properly responding to treatment. That is an enormous, enormous loss to the person, as most people realize also. It's an enormous loss to families. Depression and PTSD damage families because, because their loved ones are suffering. And, of course, it's huge it has a huge economic cost as well. So we've got to confront the... Uh, historic animosity to these drugs by you know using every you know both moral and also economic arguments and if uh, there are any philanthropists listening i want to point them in the direction of you what's your charity called and how can they support your oh research super so the charity is called drug science and drugs if you go on the website there's masses and i would suggest that you know if you go on the website you can hear listen to my podcasts um also follow me on twitter Prof. David Nutt on Twitter. I don't tweet a lot, but when I tweet, it's worth reading because it usually takes you to something that's novel and interesting and usually research-based. 
Well, it's incredible what you're doing, David, and I'm I am myself so grateful to you. And、um, it's just been such a joy talking to you, and I really, really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing One Hundred and One. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text Shout to eight five two five eight.